Hey there, you're listening to Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And this is a podcast about streaming movies, series, and everything in between. On this episode of SVU, Matt and I podcast in the same room for the first time in six weeks. And as soon as we're in the same room together, we're struck by a flood of repressed memories of our shared childhoods. Allison, we didn't know each other as kids. That's just what it, the fear-sucking demon that lives in the sewers beneath this city, wants us to believe. Okay, ah, I get it. Because on this episode, we're reviewing the 1990 miniseries version of It, which is currently streaming on Hulu. We are? Never mind. In addition to our review of It, and in honor of Tim Curry's performance as Pennywise, its evil clown, we are going to talk about other movies featuring clowns which are generally delightful, mirth-giving souls who have never scared anyone. But first, let's talk about it. Tuesday night. It's 30 years later. And right on schedule, the killing start up again. Six so far, maybe more. It's that, and it's mad. Take your pick, big Billy boy. Something bad's going to happen to one of us. Get out of Derry while you still can. I'm going back in. This time I'm going to kill it. The thrilling conclusion of Stephen King's It, Tuesday night. So here's how Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit works. Uh, we turn the decision about what we should review next over to you. At the end of each episode, we give you three different films or shows. We let you vote on which one you'd like to hear us talk about. And last time, your choices were The Disaster Artist, which is on Amazon. The 1990 TV miniseries adaptation of It, which is on Hulu. And the new Lynn Shelton movie, Outside In, which is over on Netflix. Uh, while the disaster artist took an early lead, in the words of Judd Apatow playing himself, just because you want it doesn't mean it can happen. It came back for the win, and it is what we're talking about. So the miniseries adaptation of It aired over two nights on ABC in 1990. It had originally been conceived of as a four-part, eight-to-ten-hour series to be directed by George A. Romero. Uh, he left because of scheduling conflicts and Tommy Lee Wallace, who had directed a few sequels of horror franchises, Halloween 3, Seasons of the Witch, Fright Night Part 2, and some Twilight Zones, came on to direct... The final version ended up being in two parts, with a total runtime of just over three hours, uh, without commercials, of course, um, which makes it closer to what's happened with the theatrical version, which is also being unfolded in two parts, the second chapter due out in 2019. Except where the new theatrical adaptations have divided the events of the original Stephen King book into a linear story where it's childhood first and then adulthood. The miniseries cuts uh, between the adult cast, which features Richard Thomas, John Ritter and Annette O'Toole, among others, and the young cast uh, in flashbacks, uh, including Jonathan Brandis, Emily Perkins and a young Seth Green. Uh, it is far from the only Stephen King miniseries to have been made. There are so many Stephen King adaptations. It is astounding to look through them now, especially now that he is so hot right now, again, as a source of intellectual property. Uh, but there have been over a dozen miniseries alone from Salem's Lot in 1979, The Stand in 1994, the King preferred TV take on The Shining in 1997. But it is, I would argue, the best known of all of them. And maybe the like most fondly remembered. And that would be in large part due to its take on Pennywise the Clown, played by Tim Curry in full clown makeup, a 
Bronx-ish accent and an occasional mouthful of sharp teeth. Now, of course, it uh, the movie made a huge impact at the box office. It was a really unexpectedly enormous hit, and we're waiting on to see what the second half will be like. But I have a feeling it's also going to attract a big following. And so I am curious, Matt, for you. Obviously, a TV miniseries version is not working with... It's working with 1990s special effects. It is working with... 1990s television production standards, Mm -hmm. but people really remember this fondly. Yes. Did it have an appeal beyond kind of nostalgic value to you or did it not work? It did not. And it did not work. Uh, (laughs) I didn't watch this as a kid. It it passed me by. I think I mentioned on the, when we threw this out as an option for a listener choice, I, I didn't, you know, I hadn't seen it. I've seen the movie version and, um, I hadn't read the book. So, like, my first real experience with it was that was the recent movie. And I have to say I vastly, 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 vastly prefer that for a couple of reasons, which we can talk about. Um, the, the, the miniseries is in two parts, sort of like the movie will eventually be. But a, a key difference is the movie only has the young versions of the characters. We never see them as adults. Right. So the move, like the TV version, which we're discussing here, like it, loosely, it's it, like the first half is the movie that that we already saw. Except there's also like scenes in quote unquote the present now the now our past with the adult versions of the characters remembering what happened. And I thought that didn't really work all that well. And then uh, especially when you got to the second half and they're like one of the str- – it's funny how like you'll buy like a, a crazy fear-sucking uh, clown. <laughs> but like the idea that all these people will forget their childhoods and don't even remember all this stuff happening, like for some reason that drove me bonkers because it, it becomes such a like a thing they talk about over and over again in the movie. And even – and I guess this is kind of a spoiler, but like at the end of the movie when the, the survivors are like, We've, we're already forgetting what happened again. And I was like, what? Why? I don't understand. And I guess it's – you know, I, 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 I assume that it's part of – if this is in the novel or a version of it is in the novel, it is sort of Stephen King's commentary on how you do forget parts of your childhood. Like as it recedes from memory, things become very faint and fuzzy. And sometimes you can see something or meet someone and you can have like a flash of memory. That's absolutely realistic and true. And, you know, maybe that's what he was going for. But generally when someone fights, like I would assume, like a demon hell clown, you would remember that. But I I don't know. For some reason that bugged me. And there's a lot of things about this I didn't like. I really – I was like – Really impressed with that movie, which I think I said last time. Like I – as someone who doesn't have nostalgia for it at all, I thought that was a great horror movie. Really effective. Really well done. I thought this was your classic TV movie schlock. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, people who enjoy it as kids, wonderful. You enjoyed it as a kid. I feel like if you didn't have that nostalgic vibe for it, you probably – if you went in cold like me, don't think you would find a lot to like in it. Yeah. I didn't see it as a kid either. Uh, I would have been like probably 10 when this came right, out. We're on TV. roughly the same age. Same, same thing. Age. Nine, 10. And, yeah. And I think if I had seen this on TV at the time, it would have terrified For me. For sure. Absolutely. I So not looking back uh, on it with that kind of fondness, I will say, I think I like it a bit more than you do, mm-hmm. but I would agree... I mean, the device in which they don't remember things in town is is from the book, uh, though I would not say it's handled very deftly uh, no. on screen. No. But that 
it is like the ways in which the adults don't seem to notice what's going on. It is a kind of supposed to be this effects that the town right. is, like, this is in the grip of. But I, I don't could... think it's it's handled well, in part because the kind of structure in which you're cutting back and forth between childhood and adults means that we as viewers end up seeing the adults be like, I remember this. And then, but we're like, we saw that happen already. So it keeps cutting into like their memories of like remembering these things that happened of something that we just watched happen, especially watching this as one giant chunk. You feel like you're watching someone have flashbacks to earlier (laughs) in the movie, which is just a a deeply annoying thing. Totally spot on point. I completely agree. To watch on screen. Uh, And I, I, you know, again, this is like, you know, a network production and the the production values i think and especially with the way it's edited i think you see a lot of the kind of strain there that it's trying to right pull together but i will say i think that i and i don't want to say that i to to be presenting this in a kind of act of nostalgia but there is something to slightly creaky practical effects that can be very especially in this age of like overwhelming computer generated imagery Mm -hmm. that has this weird pull, you know, it, the movie, which I, I, I think is fine. I don't like as much as you do, uh, but that everything in it is computer generated and it leaves like a way in which everything is possible, but there's something to like the weird actual sticky blood, like welling up around the photo album in this, even if it is a little hokily done where it has this kind of, heft to it that I, I i say is i do think is undeniable that's a good point i i will say there were a couple of things i liked about it and you've touched on one of them which is like yes the sort of tactility of especially the blood there's not a lot of it because and this is another issue is not this wasn't like on hbo this was on abc right this was on primetime television so they were bound by the standards of broadcast television, which are still pretty strict today, but you can imagine what they were like more than 25 years ago. So there's only so much they can show. That said, there are a few moments that are effective, and there is something to the fact, like, you know, there are scenes where, like, with blood, where it's just, like, corn, you know, red corn syrup, and it gets everywhere, and, like, the actors have blood all over them, you know, and it's the thing where the children see the blood, but no one around them does, and the actors around them are covered in it, and you get the feeling like, well, they were just shooting this so fast, they were kind of just, like, if it got on things, they just had to keep rolling, and so there is sort of a messiness to it that I liked. That's something I did like, and there's a few very kind of clever tricks uh, that are practical, like where, you know, there's the scene with, um, you know, where uh, I think it's Annette O'Toole is kissing John Ritter, and then uh-huh. they pull back, and she's wearing the yeah. it the, from, like, the waist down. She's wearing the it uh, clown suit, and then they cut back, and it's Tim Curry. Like, that kind of stuff, it works. Yeah, I liked the weird fortune cookie effects, even, yes. where everyone, something weird happens and disturbing happens to everyone's fortune cookie. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so totally, you're you've touched on one of the things that I did like. And one other thing I will say in favor of this is, you know, the fact I, I, you know, I sort of loved the way that the movie was shot has a lot of style to it. Yeah. This one, there's so little artifice to it. There's almost like a documentary quality to some of it when there's not a lot of effects, especially with just the kids hanging out. Uh, I thought they did a good job of recreating the fifties period and I thought the the kid actors were 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 pretty good, and I, I you know just following them around through dairy of the fifties again there was something to it that just kind of had that I don't know that, that sort of a, a realistic air that 
the movie version felt more stylized. And I liked the movie a lot, but it just – this one, I think when something seems kind of plausible and real in that way, when it does get a little creepier, it makes it – to me, it's always scarier when it's – you can place yourself in this world. You believe the world. The world seems real and then crazy stuff starts happening. It's it's that much scarier. So I, I like that about it too. Sure. And I think that because it has a, maybe a little – it, it gives a bit more runway to the kid storyline. You understand in a way that I think the movie handles slightly differently, that these are kids who are in part brought together because they were all bullied for different reasons or right. outcast for different reasons. Right. Uh, it's always been one of the weird choices to me in the movie that they excise the language around what is clearly like racist and anti-Semitic bullying, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not sure what led to that choice where you're like, there's the homeschooled kid. And you're like, they're not picking on Mike because he's homeschooled. <laughs> like very obviously. Right. <laughs> you know? Um, and I think that, well, just, racism didn't exist in the 1980s. You have to course, remember I'm that it was, so they're, finished by the- <laughs> yes, you have to remember that the, in the movie, the early scenes are set in the eighties. Right. So. Um, uh, so to see that, like, which is, you know, also from the book included in there and have it kind of be more explicit, I thought yes. like to made it a little more to be like, they're not, they become real friends as kind of clunky as occasionally some of those scenes can be. Those declarations of friendship and meaning, uh, they become real friends in part because they found each other through being so, right. you know, excluded. There is something striking and interesting about the fact that, you know, the movie, an R-rated movie from 2017 can be more explicit in so many ways. And it is. It's much scarier and graphic and all that. And yet it, it the language... And the use of words uh, from 25 years ago is so much more shocking. Right. Right. There's like, you know, She's that right. kind like, of stuff. He uses, right. Like the bully uses the N word on, on network television. Right. right. And, and, and he is like, obviously he is meant to be despicable and he is using them in like, of course. but like that, I, I mean, I, I don't know that in this day and age that word would be, we would not like allow the usage of that word in any context, you know? Probably I wonder. Not. Yeah. Probably for like not. a prime time. And- network right uh, yeah so i thought that was another sort of interesting uh aspect too but i but again i didn't particularly enjoy watching three hours of it's, this i mean it's and i thought and, I, and yeah. I did think that the second half and this made me sort of a little nervous about the sequel even though i was previously really looking forward to the sequel i didn't really like the second half at all and i thought all of the stuff um once we mostly jettisoned the kids i thought it got kind of silly and there's a lot of good actors in the cast sure. of the adults. Yeah, I like, know. Big name actors, you know, and Annette O'Toole and, and Harry Anderson, John Ritter. And I thought most of their performance were kind of like terrible. Like just like it was very like soap opera. And I, I you know, like I almost don't even – I feel bad like saying that as an insult to soap operas. It's just like like the stereotype of like bad TV acting where it's like people like oh, clutching their hands to their faces and like and, – and sweating and going, is that you? Is that really you? And it's like – I was like, was it that they had, you know, you know, a very short timeline? They only got one take? What was it that they just didn't get good performances It's here? definitely – the adults are – surprisingly like much weaker when it comes to performing but i think it's also that the this version and i i wonder how they'll handle this in the movie but like it it's harder to grapple with being like you know to your point about what bothered you about this to grapple with people who grow up to be adults and are like it's so silly to be afraid of like a clown monster when we were kids and to really still be like 
even if this is mostly faded from my memory, I need to go back. Right. And I need to do what? I mean, I think that's part of the weakness of the miniseries is that it seems unclear what they've all gathered for. Right. You know, until... They have to kill it, but there's like... But they don't even seem clear on the fact that they have to kill it for a while. Yeah. They all come back together and then they have dinner and they, they go to a Chinese restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea that you're like, oh, you're all coming back together to to defeat this thing that was so frightening that one of your members can't bear to deal with it right? right that that it's a it's a kind of tricky thing to try and show adults grappling with huge childhood fears right and i think that the, it doesn't rise to that challenge this the, the this also raised a question that maybe is addressed in the book that i didn't have watching the movie which is that okay this thing it feeds every 30 years or whatever so then my question was like well in the in the movie it's like they like kill it and of course it comes back in a sequel sure but watching watching this whole sprawling saga I'm like so did they do anything in the first movie like if they had if they had just ignored it and just waited it, it out. I would think it would have taken more children. Oh, it would have taken they them. Saved, uh, they, it was, they, I think they, they like, saved themselves short. to an yeah, extent. Yeah, they cut short the it's uh, grazing period. It's funny because as a whole, it just seemed like it was less of an impressive achievement when it's like, eh, he's back again. Right. And and they make a big deal out of he comes back every 30 years. Yeah. And I didn't remember that being quite as big a thread in the movie. Maybe it was. And yeah. I mean, my memory is pretty shot these days. I, I did think when watching this about don't be afraid of the dark that Guillermo del Toro produced movie mm. uh, from like eight years ago. I think mm-hmm. it was, you know, with Katie Holmes and Guy Pierce. And that was another remake of uh, a made for TV horror movie. Right. And it was, you know, made with all of these kind of present day, uh, I, I think we've even talked about it on this podcast, but it was made with all uh, up-to-date effects, but it was trying to recapture that feeling of eeriness that comes from like a low budget kind of low like clunky tv production that can sometimes be really frightening Mm -hmm. and uh, i it made me I, i think kind of glad that the it movies do not seem that beholden to the vision of the of the miniseries because i think that the parts of this the parts of the miniseries that do work work because of that magic and i think that that's like a really difficult thing to try and get back at Mm. you know uh and we haven't talked about pennywise yet yeah i was gonna say that's i mean that's another uh we got to talk about him given especially given our theme but that's a a one way in in which the the movie especially is very different because they're very different performances and i know there was a lot of uh you know like angst about that because tim curry's pennywise is so Maybe beloved is a weird choice of words, but right. like he's like iconic. Yes, and and at least when the I remember when the pictures started coming out of uh, the new Pennywise, people were like, he looks ridiculous, and there was that one of him in like the sewer pipe, which was kind of silly. Uh-huh. But then when you saw the movie, it was fantastic. And I'm gonna be uh, maybe say something very uh, heretical here, but I I definitely prefer the new Pennywise to the old one, mm. and I did not particularly find tim curry's pennywise super super scary i feel like again like as i get if i was a kid watching it totally would have been terrified but um i don't know it just he was just like just a guy talking like this and then i think the other thing was that they kept using the same gimmick which was he would show up 
and he would talk and then he they would cut to like a shot a very tight close-up of him with like the fake pointy teeth going and that was basically (laughs) how he terrorized every single kid and after a while i was just like this is not you got to be a little more creative here with your you know your fear mongering excuse me demon yeah i'd like to i felt like he needed to step up his game and i'm sure again part of it is budget uh schedule all that stuff they didn't have time but I, I gotta say, if you ask me to pick, to me there's no there's no choice. Oh, I, go, I, I go new Pennywise. I like old Pennywise. Oh, I come feel on. like no. I think that, I, and this is I, where we split. I okay. think in terms of the movie, which okay. is that I feel like in the movie, all of the kids' personal fears are handled really well. Mm-hmm. Like I love the kid who's afraid of the painting in his dad's uh, office. Yes, which I feel like that's such a way that something you would be afraid of as a kid, totally, and be unable to really even explain it, but it fills you with terror. Mm-hmm. And I think all of those moments were handled very well in the movie but i was really underwhelmed by pennywise like i just found him to be he's such a like an overtly scary clown <laughs> like already yeah. but that's it i feel like the whole point of pennywise is that there has to be some bit where there's a weird blurring of the line between functional clown and and scary clown I mean, to be just like nightmare clown right away really like defeats the purpose of appearing as a clown at all. I mean, I guess I, I think that's actually a, a fair point, except for the fact that I don't think Tim Curry strikes me as a believable, regular, happy clown. Oh, I found him sometimes kind of funny, like in this like really weird, belligerent bullying way. I feel like <laughs> if I saw him at a children's birthday party, I would run. I, I, I wouldn't liked, even for no, a moment want no, the balloon. It worked for me. Okay. I like that. He, I mean like the parts where he's like standing on the side of the road, like waving at John Ritter, like uh, <laughs> like I just loved it because it's funny. Like I, I think that he is a funnier like he may not be quite as good at menacing, but he is like funnier about it. Mm-hmm. And in in a weird way, even though it's so much more lo-fi, the scene in which he they're looking at the photo and the photo comes to life and he kind of like bounces down the street and comes up towards the camera mm-hmm. was much more frightening to me than the scene in the it movie where there's the, the um, slide projector. Slide projector. I love that scene. Oh, that I was just like <laughs> I it didn't I I wanted. It, that felt like more familiar horror movie to me. Mm. There was just something about the weirdness of like seeing this video in which he kind of like is coming towards you and towards you and then no one can pull away. Mm-hmm. That just worked better for me than the side. I mean, I, I didn't. I, the, the version in the miniseries isn't bad. I like that one, too. But I, I, I like the slide projector. Maybe it's because my family, my father, my whole childhood took pictures as slides and then we would watch slideshows. Uh-huh. <laughs> He listens. They li- he listens to this podcast. And then so I'm not going to say anything bad about. And the then one shows. time they got out one of time a clown, a clown started talking to me yeah. and asking me if I wanted to float. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, I do think when it co- the movie is miles better when it comes to all of their personal fears and I think in general, yes, like obviously production value, obviously production value, acting, craft, craft, acting, craft style. Yes, yes, there's a couple of things that like that are that are to this movie or miniseries credit totally understand why kids would have been drawn to it in 1990 um and i get why people who loved it as kids are nostalgic about it but as someone who was not nostalgic about it didn't do a ton for me uh and i definitely would uh, i would recommend the movie version ahead of the miniseries sure i would probably too but i i feel like if you're gonna watch uh your your dead friend's head turn up in a refrigerator, as happens in in this version. Uh, uh, I kind of liked. It. Well, That's... you haven't seen the version of that scene yet. I know. Maybe the version, but in it the won't. Movie you will... know, it won't be as funny. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, all right. Well, that is it. The 1990 miniseries. You can find it on Hulu. So let's talk about more clowns. Are you 
Allison, in general, are you afraid of clowns? I was never someone who was. No, I mean, I can understand why someone would be afraid of clowns, but I never had strong feelings about clowns as a child. It seems a little overblown, the fear of clowns. It seems like the kind of. It can come, I think, from it a lot, right? Yeah, maybe. But given how it has become such a thing. Like, you almost don't see happy clowns anymore anywhere. It's like it's all about scary clowns. Right. Like, I was – when we were, like, picking this topic and I was looking around for movies as, like, reminders or kind of things I hadn't seen yet, all the lists are, like, scary clowns. Yeah. It's all (laughs) – it's it's like – I think at this point it's almost – we're ready. For, I, I think if you wanted to be uh, really do something bold, it'd be like make a movie about an actually funny clown. Like, right. how many of those are there? I, not many. Not many. Not many. Not uh, many. I was. I mean, I was looking, and and I didn't find that many either. I mean, the only thing that I really thought of that I kind of think fits with, but even though, but it's barely a clown movie. Is I thought of Quick Change, mm. the Bill Murray movie, where he's he plays the uh, the, the criminal who's dressed as a as a clown. Yeah, and I, that's a. I love that movie. But not really a happy clown quite. movie, but it's close. Right. And I still haven't caught up on Baskets, uh, the FX series, which right. is definitely about clowning and uh, about a a clowning in the classical sense and also in the failure in the classical American sense, mm-hmm. <laughs> professional failure. But, uh, you know, that is one of the few things I can think of that is about – it was like a funny series about clowning. But certainly – one thing that just even looking into this taught me is that there is a whole world of like direct to DVD equivalent movies oh, about yeah. scary clowns. Like yes. there are so many like cheap horror movies about clowns out there right now. Yes. People have made IMDb lists that like just have so many different horror movies out there. So mm-hmm. if you have a have a yen, have a hankering for scary clown movies, there right now I think you can turn up just an amazing abundance. Of scary clowns. Yeah. Well, you want me to go first? I mean, I, I wanted to have at least one pick that that wasn't scary. So I, I, I searched around for something that did not involve an evil or scary clown, but a funny cl- a clown. Or at least, you know, the, the other sort of stereotype, which is the sad clown, the tragic clown. And I found that uh, in a, a film that I had never watched before. It is La Strada from Federico Fellini, made in 1954. It is currently available on Filmstruck or on Canopy. Uh, the clown here is uh, definitely a tragic figure uh, named Gelsamina, played by Giulietta Messina, who was Fellini's wife and muse. And her character is this kind of chaplain-esque, sort of melancholic, funny, sad, very innocent, but very tortured and beaten down by life figure. Her mother essentially sells her into a kind of slavery to this traveling strongman, uh, played by Anthony Quinn. Uh, Zampano travels around, putting on shows for donations. He previously had Gelsamina's sister as his companion. The sister dies before the movie begins. And then the mother, showing what I felt was not the best of maternal instincts, personally speaking, decides not – Instead of maybe what I would do is maybe like get the police to investigate my daughter's death, she sells her another daughter to this guy for I think like 10,000 lira. Not great parenting. Um, so Gelsamina uh, joins the act. She becomes like a clown and she assists him in his, in his act. She plays musical instruments. But he is this perpetually drunk, perpetually carousing with other women, perpetually abusive bully. She tries to leave. He tracks her down. She meets other sort of circus and traveling performers. He chases after her. Uh, it's uh, Things get 
sadder and sadder. It's not a, this is not a uh, happy clown movie. No. It is a tragic clown movie. But um, as I said, this is my first time watching it. My favorite thing about it was Juliette Mess- Julietta Messina's performance. It is incredible. Uh, it has a reputation as being this incredible performance. And it's really wonderful. She has the most amazingly expressive face. Um, which makes her both a very good clown or a good a good choice to play a clown because clowning involves, you know, facial expressions. Usually there's not a lot of talking unless you're a Tim Curry kind of clown and also makes her a wonderful actor for the other scenes, particularly because this character is so dominated by the men around her. She doesn't get to talk all that much. So we really have to watch her story play out on her face, in her eyes, in her body language and – She's just um, really wonderful at all of that. I, I absolutely loved her performance. Uh, regarding the clown aspect, uh, there is definitely something extra sad, extra unhappy about any story about a sad clown because, you know, before they became synonymous with jump scares, thanks to it and other things, they really were this longstanding source of joy and wonder for children. And so to see the sacrifices, the pain of, of, of a clown and how perhaps that is a metaphor for, well, maybe for many things, but perhaps in this case for the larger idea about artists who are, you know, suffering or present uh, themselves as funny people. Um, but, uh, they are hiding something or masking pain or struggling with something is very poignant. And, uh, I like the movie, not my favorite Fellini that I've seen, but I was definitely glad I finally watched it. It is La Strada. It is available on Filmstruck or on Canopy. All right. Well, Fellini may come up with one of my choices later, but before then. Okay. I guess he liked clowns. He's a man who liked clowns. Big clown guy. Absolutely. Uh, Before then, I wanted to talk about a movie that is, in fact, about a sad clown as well. It is The Last Circus, which you can find on Shudder. Uh, Last Circus is the 2010 movie from Alex de la Iglesia, who is, you know, if you're familiar with his work, he's a maker of these kind of dark, darkly comedic, often gruesome movies that fall somewhere on the boundaries of like the, these kind of excessive supernatural tinged movies or genre tinged movies and comedy, I would say. And this one certainly falls within that realm. I think it was maybe his biggest international success or certainly it was you know as someone who's been steadily making movies in this realm for a long time one that that got him some added attention it is about two clowns really though one of them is i guess you could call our hero a very questionable title there um javier who is by Antonio de la Torre is the sad clown, though he was he was the child of a happy clown in the beginning of the movie his father uh, is recruited during the Spanish Civil War to fight against the nationalists. So his father is handed a machete and goes out in like full clowning gear and kills a bunch of people before eventually being captured by a fascist general. Uh, and then Javier, as a teenager, avenges his father who then tells his son, he cannot be a happy clown. He has to play a sad clown. He's already experienced too much woe. Indeed, as an adult, he plays uh, a, ha- a sad clown who is basically the straight man for the happy clown of a circus, a man named Sergio, who is also extraordinarily violent and says the reason he chose clowning is because otherwise he would be a murderer. Not your standard line for a clown who plays to children, but as it turns out, there's not nothing standard about 
about this movie, which kind of shapes up into being a love triangle between Sergio, Javier, and Natalia, played by Carolina Bang, who is a trapeze artist and also a woman with maybe some unhealthy romantic impulses. She is dating Sergio, a man who is like unapologetically violent towards her, but something that she seems to kind of, uh, she seems to take pleasure from that, or at least find something appealing in his aggression. Meanwhile, Javier is also appealing in his own way, but she doesn't physically desire him. And uh, if this sounds like a really unhealthy set of relationships, it absolutely is, but it is also very clearly, uh, a metaphor for Spain, Natalia being Spain, and uh, Sergio being the stand-in for the fascist or for like Franco's government, uh, whereas Javier is the the kind of uh, wimpier but like good-hearted one who keeps trying to save Natalia from her relationship, uh, but whom she never seems to really want to choose or commit to. Uh, so this really exaggerated version of this dynamic unfolds against a background of, in the 70s, um, the kind of actual Spanish politics and uh, actual Spanish kind of uh, chaos that happens. There are moments in which, uh, uh, after many things have happened, and Javier, it's hard to even describe how it got here, is being made to serve as like a hunting dog, <laughs> retrieving retrieving birds that have been shot uh he bites franco's hand there are is another moment where he intersects with the assassination of the prime minister and asks the people who did it what circus they are part of <laughs> this is like a ridiculously excessive movie but it uh, it kind of never it always keeps its eye on the prize and it also manages to at a certain point when it reaches its like operatically gruesome ending to have both of its clowns be hideously maimed, one of whom has like a kind of Glasgow smile after an injury, the other of whom gives himself a classic Joker style permanent clown makeup scenario. And it ends on like a really fabulously dark note. Uh, I, like uh, Alex de Iglesia is not someone who ever holds back. And I think uh, certainly this movie is extreme in a lot of ways, but I think that it is this kind of fascinating, dark fairy tale uh, version of Spain as, as fed through this dying circus. And I don't think I've ever seen anything like that before. Uh, so if any of that interests you and you have a taste for dark comedy and also for violence, the last circus can be found on shutter. I have not seen that movie. It sounds like I'm looking at as you're describing it. I'm like reading the Wikipedia. I'm like, whoa, boy, <laughs> that sounds like something. All right. Uh, for my next pick, I needed something a little lighter than La Strada the night that I was, uh, you know, deciding what else to, to recommend. And that is how I wound up with my second pick, Spawn. From <laughs> ni- yes, from 1997, it is currently available on Hulu. This is an adaptation of a very popular 90s comic book. Uh, it was also turned into a fairly successful and much more sort of like serious and not ridiculous HBO cartoon series around that time. And while the comic hasn't had much cultural cachet lately, they are now working on a remake. Did you hear about this, Allison? No. Jamie Foxx is going to star as Spawn in the remake, supposedly. We'll see if it happens. Um, but in terms of that, you know, some people, they get very upset when movies are remade. How could you remake this classic? It's perfect. It's beyond improving. Uh, if there is, if the opposite of that could be given a term, 
perhaps it would be spawning a movie because this movie is awful. It is hilariously terrible. And I'm not I, – I can't conceive of a world in which the remake, even if it's bad, is – is is worse than this maybe if they shot the whole thing like out of focus or they forgot to like the sound guy was like incompetent and forgot to record the sound other than that it's got to be better um and that's why i love this movie it is it's just delightfully terrible um it is fairly faithful to the story of the comic at least as i remember it the early days of the comic which i did read um it is about this uh elite soldier who is uh, murdered comes back to life as an agent of the forces of hell, complete with magical superpowers and this uh, costume and cape, which he can control to do crazy things. And then he, you know, he rebels against his new masters, refuses to work for the devil, etc. Uh, and the, the the devil, the demons he supposedly works for that that live in hell, truly some of the worst effects, CGI or otherwise, I guess, <laughs> that I've ever seen in any movie from like a reputable hollywood movie studio in this case new line cinema and what really blew my mind after i watched it was reading about it and to discover the director a gentleman named mark a z depay had a background in special effects huh he worked at ilm worked on many of ilm's most famous and most iconic 90s productions like the abyss terminator 2 jurassic park he was like a co-effect supervisor on a lot of these movies and they hired that guy, an effects guy, to make this movie, and then the the movie looks like an unfinished Sega CD game. It's insane. I don't understand. How did it happen? I have no idea, but I, I, I want to know more because it doesn't make any sense when you learn that. The evil clown in this film is named very creatively Clown. He is like one of like a like another one of these agents of hell. He is played very broadly, very over the top by John Leguizamo. Basically unrecognizable except for his voice because he's wearing pounds and pounds of makeup and uh, he's you know sort of like bald and he's he's very short and heavy set and it looks just like the character in the comics uh, uh, and does remind me a little bit of Tim Curry's Pennywise with the makeup the supernatural powers he can transform into a demon called the Violator when he wants and he does have this kind of gruff. Not quite, you know, it's not quite a New York Bronx accent, but it's definitely a similar kind of urban, you know, kind of a vibe. He's not particularly scary, certainly not as scary as Pennywise. Maybe some of that is by design. He makes several fart jokes, <laughs> which I generally don't find scary. Funny sometimes, but not scary. Um, he's sort of like Pennywise meets Jack Nicholson's Joker, I guess you would say. Okay. Uh, Spawn is played by Michael Jai White, mostly beneath... Uh, some terrible, terrible makeup himself. But my favorite performance of all in the movie, which I hold very dear to my heart and I will treasure forever and I regret taking this long to see, is Martin Sheen playing the like the, the evil mastermind, Jason Wynn. He's like Michael White's former boss, Spawn's former boss. He betrays him. He also works for the clown. He undergoes this medical procedure so that if he's killed, it'll, like, release this virus into the world so Spawn can't kill him. And it's – he gives the most over-the-top, like, gruff Mike Martin Sheen performance I've ever seen Martin Sheen give. <laughs> it's just, like, his dialogue, any scene where he's talking out loud is just incredible. Like, I wrote – hold on. I wrote down my favorite line. Here we go. 
Soon the whole world will be at my command. Anyone who refuses to join my consortium won't be around to argue. <laughs> That's beautiful. Oh, thank you. It is tremendous. I, you know, somehow I had never seen this, um, the movie. I, I'd seen parts of it on television or on cable. I'd never watched the whole thing, partly because it looked so terrible. <laughs> it is, I was just sitting there laughing my little keister off at this terrible thing. I really, if you're in the moon for some schlock, which Roger Ebert loved and gave three and a half stars Fascinating. and said it was best appreciated as an abstract art piece. I'm not making this up. Uh, in which the voice of Satan literally is the voice of Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget. I'll get you, Spawn. It is uh, absolutely transcendently wonderful. It is Spawn, uh, which is currently available on Hulu. Okay. Well, I don't know how my second pick can really compete with that. Do your best. But it is at least uh, appealingly weird. It is another Fellini film. It is The Clowns, which is streaming on Fandor, a 1970 TV movie he made that also was released in theaters as part of a deal that is this kind of – it exists somewhere between documentary and fiction. But it also – it's almost mockumentary in that it is sort of about Fellini making a documentary about clowns. And he is, as previously discussed, a man who loved his circuses and his clowns. Uh, and so there are sequences of fiction, including one where he kind of restages his like eight-year-old experience with the circus and with clowns, which he didn't like. He was afraid of them. He says it's a, uh, uh, at a certain point, the clowns didn't make me laugh. No, they frightened me. And he draws this direct line from this performance, which we see this kind of like magical delirious, very Fellini-esque circus performance to the ways in which he saw the clowns kind of like blurring in with these like outcasts in his village, like the the kind of man who just uh, makes propositions like kind of obscenely to all the women or uh, the the kind of station master uh, who the, the, the schoolboys all torment. He does not see clowns in this positive sense, but you could see that the movie is sort of this noodly uh, attempt at, at looking into his own interest in clowns like this. Oh, it is kind of this act of autobiography, something he was also very fond of. And so then the movie gives way to this middle bit in which he goes around uh, interviewing these clowns in Paris, great kind of former masters of clowning of the, of the art of the old ways. And these are sort of fake or like recreations of interviews and in that you see Fellini on screen. You see his like staff, you see him doing interviews though. Clearly the interviews we see are not the ones he is shooting with his camera crew. And it, all of these, uh, none of the clowns are like extremely positive about where things are going with clowning, which seems a fair thing to say. Uh, and so then, so the movie kind of gives way to being this elegy, like elegy of both clowning and maybe Fellini himself. Uh, and then it becomes this clown funeral being staged, uh, Somewhere that then finally makes its way towards, uh, as things kind of go wrong, there's like 
bits of slapstick. Uh, it becomes a Fellini movie, finally. It becomes this kind of grand parade. It reaches those heights, these kind of grand swells of emotion that we tend to associate with him. But it has this streak of, of kind of sadness to it, this streak of the, uh, of this idea, both not just of like grappling with death, but also grappling with this idea of your art no longer being relevant to people, you know, of, of the idea of the, the joy that your job it is to create kind of seeping out of, of the world you live in or being replaced by other sources of joy. It's a very weird movie. And I won't say that it isn't a kind of ramble at parts. And yet it is, especially in the context of his career, just a fascinating movie. You know, it is certainly minor, but it is, it feels like a kind of morose retrospective, uh, of this kind of lifelong theme, including a certain part where one of the interviewees quizzes Fellini uh, about um, what the movie is about. And kind of before he can answer, there's like a bucket falls on his head, (laughs) (laughs) which is, I think, one of the best ways to address uh, what, uh, you know, being questioned about your own, own readings of your own work. Buckets should just fall on anyone's head uh, before they can ever answer. So if you want to check that out, The Clowns is on Fandor. Uh, and that's definitely worth a look. Before we get to Behind the Eight Ball on this episode, we have to announce something. It's a sad announcement. With a heavy heart. Uh, next episode of Film Spotting SBU will be the final episode. Yes. For a variety of reasons. We don't need to go into all of them. I mean, I think it's worth saying, like, and I think this is true for a lot of people with We podcasts. hate each other now. We hate each other we now. We despise each other. We're literally just, like, threatening each other as we're doing this. <laughs> it's the only way we can bear to be in the same room is, like, having a brandishing weapon. I've at just each been, other. like, yeah, the whole time the doing, whole like, time. the finger gun thing. Yeah. And it's just, a, frankly, a very stressful way to have to do a podcast. It's not healthy. It's gotten Sunday. very unhealthy. Yeah. yeah. But it is, I will say, and I've, I've, I know this is true for a lot of other podcasts this size, that it's become more financially difficult to sustain Mm -hmm. you know we haven't gotten the advertisers we used to which is not the only reason we do this but has certainly made it more difficult to kind of do what has been like a very it's it's a time-consuming thing that we've always put a lot of work into because it's been important to us and obviously scheduling has been something that's matt has got a lot going on right now in terms of we're both very busy Yes, and it's a, it's, there's some other it, things that I'm hoping to work on. Mm. It's a it's a labor of love that the labor I think became too laborious. Yes, let's put it that way. So you know it, it, we don't actually hate each other. We don't, and I would sure. I would hope that someday we'll get to do it again, maybe for a third a third podcast because this is already our second podcast. Yes. We were just looking at how long. We've been doing this one since the beginning of 2012 yep. was the first episode. End of January 2012. Yes. So this is now, I guess it's... It's over six years. Over six years. So more, so longer than the first podcast, which we did for, I don't know how many years, but over that was over 200 episodes, but that was every week. So we had more episodes, but I think a shorter amount of time. But So we have a terrifying amount of our own conversations out there on the internet. Yes. Uh, for... <laughs> Yes, it scares me a lot. Frankly, I did. One I don't time, know what I said. In I did go back ones. one time and listen to, <laughs> uh, like a year or two ago. I don't know why, but I was listening to one of our ancient IFC podcasts, and I was like, "We sound so happy, <laughs> <laughs> so young, it was an innocent so so innocent." <laughs> and then I went. <sighs> so yeah, so our next episode is going to be the the big finale, and we. 
we have a review in mind. We're going to we've already picked the review. Yes. But for the rest of the show, we're going to do like the ultimate listener's choice, which is to say, if you have a question you want us to answer, if you have a topic you'd like us to weigh in on, a movie you'd like us to talk about, a TV show, a streaming show, whatever it might be, we're give we're we're turning the show over to you and we will answer or do as many of them as we possibly can. Yes. So like if there's a particular title that you've always wanted us to weigh in on in some way or another, send it to us. If we've seen it, right. we will weigh in. Right. You're not gonna get a full review, but we'll do our best yeah. to cover as many of them as we can. Uh our email address is SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. Maybe you'll we'll start like a Facebook thread. People yes. can put things in there. We'll start a, a Facebook thread at Facebook.com slash filmspotting SVU where you can leave comments or questions or whatever that might be. Twitter is probably I mean you could leave it to us on Twitter also, yeah. but you only have two hundred and eighty characters. Right. So I would say either email us or leave us a Facebook comment on the thread we're gonna build, and that will be the way to get your your question or your topic answered or covered. Yeah. And really, like, send us Let questions. Let her rip. Yeah, like, you have questions about podcasts, about recording a podcast, about working in, in film journalism. What you got? Send it Parenting. to us. Parenting. Parenting. Having a dog. <laughs> Having an awful dog that barks at Allison every time she comes in. Even why though we've been doing this for six why years. Why doesn't he love me? I don't understand. He's a, he's a terrible dog. He's a terrible dog. So I guess don't ask for dog ownership tips. Right. Because I screwed expect, that up pretty good. Expect rough ones is yeah. what we're saying. Rough but, ones? Oh, God. Don't even. That was not intentional. How dare you suggest that? Sure it was. SVU at filmspottingsvu.com. Send us stuff. Uh, we're returning it over to you. Yes. You know? The ultimate listener's choice. I yes. like how that sounds. That's yes. what it is. Other than the re- – and the review is going to be host choice. We've already picked it out. I'm not going to spoil it. Yes. But we've already picked it out. I already uh, – we already we already settled on it. So it'll be – we'll have a we'll have a fun farewell and, you know, we're not we're not really – the podcast is going away, but we're – we'll still be here. You know, yes. you can find us. You can follow us on social media. And, you can offer us enormous amounts of money to come hey, host or do a live podcast somewhere. That's absolutely true. Like <laughs> we, we – I'm sure we would both love to do something like that. If you have enormous amounts of money, yes. we or, need like – Or like a really plush setup, you know, where you're like, we'll put you up in this extraordinarily luxury – Right. Extra, fly you to yeah. – yeah, somewhere exactly. very posh yeah absolutely we're, we're, we're totally up for that <laughs> yeah we need like we we're not we, we don't have time to really talk about incredibles 2 but we like we need the guy from incredibles 2 who's like i love superheroes here's lots of money let's go do great things that's who we need that's if you need. are that guy or or woman hit us up hit us up hit, yeah let us know because we're <laughs> we're listening all right, so let's wrap things up now with Behind the Eight Ball. We'll give you three new films on streaming to listener recommendations that you guys have emailed to us at svu at filmspottingsvu.com. That's our email address one more time. And one uh, film or television show chosen blindly by number from our My Lists on Netflix. Allison, who's going first this time? Why don't you go first? All right. Well, then give me three new releases. Okay, first up on Amazon Prime, my favorite movie of last year, Greta Gerwig's phenomenal Lady Bird. Story of a young woman's senior year in high school as she prepares for college and life away from home and her domineering but extremely loving mother. Uh, Lady Bird, played by Saoirse Ronan, the mom, played by Laurie Metcalf. They're both fantastic. Greta Gerwig's uh, direction is fantastic. Her script, sensational. And uh, every time I see the movie, I've seen it four times now, I find new things to really appreciate about it. The last time I saw it, 
I was fascinated by all of the the pairs in the film, Allison. Mm. Lady Bird has two names, her real name and her given – as she puts it, her given name, given to her by her. Uh, she has two boyfriends. She has two best friends. There's two semesters in the film. There are two school plays and on and on and on, lots of those. So Lady Bird, a wonderful film if you haven't seen it yet, available on Amazon Prime. Next up also on Amazon Prime is The Beatles' Yellow Submarine, the Fab Four's animated movie about their adventures under the sea in a submarine whose color escapes me at this particular moment. The big knock against this movie for me is that the Beatles, for whatever reason, don't actually do their own voices. There are sound-alikes playing John, Paul, George, and Ringo for everything except the songs, but the visuals are psychedelic and wonderful. I'm wondering – I don't remember if it's scary. I know it's weird, but my 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 older daughter loves the song Yellow Submarine. I sing huh. it to her. We listen to it. So I'm wondering if I should show it to her. I don't know. I can't. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I think I might have to preview enough. it, watch yeah. it first, and see if it's appropriate. But if you want to watch it, Yellow Submarine available on Amazon Prime. Finally, I wanted to give uh, one more shout out on this episode to Canopy, the streaming site you can access for free through your local library uh, if they're affiliated with the site, and you have to check, obviously. Or if you're a student of a university, they're affiliated with a lot of universities, um, and and I think more are signing up all the time. If you can use it, this site is wonderful and really worth it. They have all kinds of movies, including a whole bunch of classics um, from the Criterion Collection and Janice Films. That's how I watched La Strada this week. But they've also just added a slew of titles, and that's particularly one that I wanted to call out this time, from Paramount. They... I don't know, licensed or were given or whatever, a bunch of Paramount titles. They've got Sunset Boulevard, Harold and Maude, Saturday Night Fever, Ordinary People, 48 Hours, An Officer and a Gentleman, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and more than that, on and on. So it's definitely worth checking out if you um, can use it. It's at least worth checking to see if you are able to access it. Canopy with a K dot com. And um, yeah, they have got that whole new batch of Paramount films, which I thought was pretty cool. All right. Give me two listener recommendations. The first uh, I have here is from Josh in Orlando, Florida. Josh writes, my recommendation is my entire high school sinking into the sea, which is on Netflix. This animated film has a premise that's basically the title. A group of quirky students try to survive as their school starts to sink after an earthquake throws the building out into the ocean. The way I describe this movie is it's like Irwin Allen and Wes Anderson had a baby. And that baby took lots of acid. The animation is trippy, but always imaginative, and it features an impressive voice cast that includes Jason Schwartzman, Maya Rudolph, Lena Dunham, Susan Sarandon, Reggie Watts, and John Cameron Mitchell. It's an odd film, but I found it charming and was surprisingly a delight to watch. So that is My Entire High School Sinking Into the Sea, recommended by Josh in Orlando, Florida. You can watch it on Netflix. That's one I have been meaning to check out. I didn't realize it was on Netflix, so I'm going to add it to my my list right now. Our next recommendation is from Chris in Smithtown, New York. Chris writes, I recently watched the 1978 film Stunt Rock on Amazon Prime. It's directed by the famous Australian director Brian Trenchard-Smith. When I saw the tagline was, Stunts Rock. <laughs> magic my curiosity was piqued as far as a narrative i'm not sure there really is one but its main character is a stuntman for a tv show in la who's romancing a magazine writer doing a piece on him 
In his free time, he helps a wizard-themed rock band with their pyrotechnics. At times, it feels almost like a documentary about stuntmen doing crazy things like scaling buildings. At other times, it's a wacky concert film. Imagine The Walk meets This is Spinal Tap with a dash of romance. Not sure it's for everyone, but for 90 minutes, I was captivated. It's a hard movie to track down. I take advantage of its availability while it lasts. That is Stunt Rock on Amazon Prime from Chris in Smithtown, New York. Thank you, Chris. That's actually a movie that I've always wanted to see, and I never have. So I'm going to have to check that one out myself on Amazon Prime before it vanishes. That's awesome. Thank you, Chris. Okay. Now give me one from your My List. This is a sad one. You gave me number three. Number three on my My List is Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown. Uh, I added it, not surprisingly, after you know he passed away. Uh, you know, I, I, I've seen most of No Reservations, but I've seen very little of Parts Unknown. It's just, you know, don't have cable for a lot of sure, the time, sure. don't have CNN. So I haven't seen a lot of it. I didn't, and I guess I just didn't realize it was on Netflix. And so I, you know, I watched like one or two this week. I was like, it's such a great show. Yeah. I mean, it's basically the same show, the as, same show. as, He's as No Reservations. He's always made the same show. But yeah. I just love that show. It yeah. is him traveling and and his experiences, his writing, his narration. He's such a great writer and narrator of his own experiences. Just um, beautiful and such a terrible and tragic loss. And I know that I guess supposedly originally Netflix was going to lose the show this week or maybe already. Yeah. And after he passed away, they extended the licensing deal. So you'll be able to watch it on there for the foreseeable future um, and uh, definitely recommend it. And I've been sampling it and it's uh, it's bittersweet to watch it now, but it's still a fantastic show. So mm-hmm. Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown. Allison, are you ready for your countdown here? I'm ready. All right, let's start with three new titles on streaming. Okay, new to Amazon is The Young Karl Marx. This is a 2017 historical film about Marx and Engels, who are played by August Diehl and Stefan Kunarski. Uh, it's a film from uh, Raoul Peck, who directed I Am Not Your Negro. Uh, this is not a documentary, but... It's his follow-up film, and while it didn't get the same kind of wild acclaim that I Am Not Your Negro did, it definitely did get some some kind of critical love, so that can be found on Amazon Now, The Young Karl Marx. New to Netflix, The Barbara Streisand, A Star is Born, uh, an extended edition of this, in fact, uh, of the multiple times this movie has been made, including this upcoming one with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, who also directs. Uh, it seems like the, like looking at the trailer of the new one, that that really follows in the kind of footsteps of the 1976 Definitely. version uh, with Chris Christopherson. Uh, but uh, I, I don't know if you've seen this version. It's really interesting to see all of the versions together in particular. But this one is part of a larger deal that Streisand struck with Netflix. You may notice a bunch of other older music specials from her on there as well. Uh, so um, if you are a Streisand fan, you can find a bunch of stuff on Netflix right now. And finally, new to Amazon Welcome home, Roxy Carmichael. Some excellent vintage Winona Ryder stuff here in this 1990 film about a 15-year-old who doesn't really fit into her town and who becomes uh, obsessed with the idea that because she is adopted, she was the daughter of Roxy Carmichael, who left the town for Hollywood and became a minor film star. And she is sure, of course, that she is descended from this woman who is coming back to town now to... uh uh, and that she thinks may offer her a chance to meet her real mother. Um, so Roxy, welcome home. Roxy Carmichael is on Amazon. 
All right. How about two listener recommendations? First off, from Sam in Chicago, uh, recommends Raw. I know you've talked about this before, but Raw was my favorite movie of 2017 and my favorite movie of any recent year. In addition to the sex cannibal thing, you know, that old chestnut, I really believe it's one of the most honest portrayals of sisters I've seen on screen. They both ultimately want the best for their sister, but don't reliably know how to express it and often make decisions that seem to directly contradict it. Also, to focus on one tiny aspect, the scene where the older sister is playing a shoot 'em up video game with the younger sister's roommate, and then the roommate leaves and the younger sister takes over might be the only time I remember ever seeing two women playing video games without male supervision and condescension, maybe ever. It's allowed to be a totally normal moment of sisters being sisters in a way that I haven't seen represented before, and I really appreciated that. Raw is streaming on Netflix. And we also have a recommendation... uh I'm including this because we had two recent recommendations of this. First from Michael, who writes, I wanted to recommend the new streaming series Cobra Kai, airing on YouTube Red. We've got a lot of people lot of this. wanting this. It's a shockingly good sequel to the original 1984 film, The Karate Kid, that reunites stars Ralph Macchio and William Zebka, picking up on the lives of former enemies Daniel LaRusso and Johnny Lawrence decades later. While a new set of young teens are trained, the story manages to also explore how, no matter how, who we become as adults, we can, can't quite ever put the traumas and grudges of our youth to bed. It tells an effective story without familiarity with the Karate Kid. And for fans of the original film, the show strikes the right balance between respectful follow-up and avoiding the curse of nostalgia porn. And because the season is only 10 half-hour episodes, it goes down easy and is very bingeable. Wanted to also shout out to Joel Petroikis, filmmaker, who sent us an email that said only... How have you not reviewed this yet? Yeah, we've gotten question a, mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> we've gotten a lot of people. I haven't watched any of it. I haven't watched any of it either. Uh, I'm still not really sure what YouTube Red is. <laughs> the, the but I will say everyone it's gotten phenomenal reviews. Yeah, everyone who sees it really likes it. Maybe, maybe if if another person sends something in, uh, I will try and sample some for our final episode. Okay, and give me one film chosen by the by number of your mileus. Well, you give me number nine. Number nine is Arrested Development. Oh. Yes. You know, I think that even, okay, taking away the context of Jeffrey Tambor's accusations. Yes, please take it taking away. Taking away the context of that disastrous New York Times interview. Please take that away as well. I was also not really in the mood necessarily for more Arrested Development right sure. now. Like the timing just felt very weird. However, I have watched some of these episodes and I will say I don't really like Oh, them. I thought they were uh, om- almost unwatchable. Yeah. I think there's also the weirdest thing about them is that it still feels in the mode of Arrested Development, but something is soured so much that you just don't like any of these characters anymore. Yeah. Even, I mean, none of the characters were ever supposed to be, like, good people, but now I'm just like, they're awful. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I don't know that I want to spend time with them anymore. I just, I, I, I watched a couple and I gave up, and I was just like, what happened? This show, I, I adored this show yeah. in its original run, and when it first came back, I was so excited. Because they got the whole cast, they, and of course the, the fourth season there was the whole thing with the you know like they they tried something different. Okay, props for trying something different. It didn't quite work out, but whatever. 
but this these episodes they didn't do that right it's, they made them regular yeah it just really is and not. there's like all these jokes about like imagine entertainment which is of course ron howard's company that makes the show and i was just like why is there why are we why are we making jokes about imagine entertainment right who doesn't who, love who, a brian grazer joke who are the, multiple who, brian grazer right. and i just jokes. kept thinking like who is the show for at this point i don't know I but don't it's know. just yeah it's very sad especially given the ways in which it tries to deal with like trump adjacency of yes. the wall and it just not it's not working but i have it still on my my list it's at you number nine it? i don't know i no, mean you're not to be probably honest not. no you're not probably not you're not gonna finish it. probably not okay so get ready for the the 167th episode spectacular farewell we're finale ending on a really clean number just yes. like a neat as as most great things end yes 167 installments we're gonna put a bow on it remember if you have a question a topic uh a movie or a television show you want us to talk about a practical question about podcasting or movie going or anything under the sun the weather i don't know you can email it to us, svu at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can leave it uh, on Facebook. We'll have a Facebook thread going for all those as well. And as always, you can find our episode archive over at filmspottingsvu.com, even when the podcast is gone, that will live on. Also links to where you can stream or rent all the titles we mention. The Film Spotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can check out more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. And we will be back in two weeks with one last episode. Until then, you can always find us online. We're on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can always follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. I don't know if I'm going to keep up dropping links over there. <laughs> But at least for another two weeks, you can follow the show. I will keep it up until then. Uh, we'll you... probably just do it on our own accounts after that. <laughs> yes, things that are new to streaming. Yeah. Uh, but for Film Spotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. 